I want you to remember this, this comparison, these two words, uh, as we go into the lesson today. The term oppressor and oppressed. Oppressor and oppressed. You're hearing it a lot more in the media now, and it all revolves around this idea of America being systematically racist, that we began in 1619 with a system of oppression, and, and they're under critical race theory. Critical race theory says all white people are racist. It doesn't matter if there's any evidence to substantiate that. In fact, you could have overwhelming evidence to the contrary. But the whole thesis is that all white people are racist, and eventually the ultimate solution is reverse racism, to where if you are white, it is actually a disadvantage. From what I understand Scripture is, the solution is for us to recognize that we are all created in the image of God, and there's only one race. And because we are created in God's image, we have unalienable rights, and not we have special rights because we are members of the LGBT community, or, the, uh, uh, or we're women, or we're, or we're Muslim, or whatever. We all have unalienable rights because we are all created in God's image. Now, you're hearing that a lot now in America. Well, that's been going on for about 60 years in the Middle East. And the accusation is, is that Israel is illegal occupiers, and they have displaced and are oppressing these poor victims called Palestinians. Well, last week we looked at the political history of the nation of Israel, and we recognized that the last country to actually occupy that area as a nation and call Jerusalem its capital was Judah and Israel, and that ended actually with the destruction of Jerusalem in 587. From that point in time, all of that land has been occupied, first by Assyria, then by Babylon, then by Media Persia, then by Greece, then by Rome. After the destruction of the temple, several hundred years later, you had the uh, Muslim caliphate invade the Holy Land. Then eventually, in 1299, you had the last caliphate, the Ottoman Turkish Empire, occupying the entirety of the Mediterranean all the way through and up to the time of World War I. After World War I, when the Ottoman Turks had sided with Germany in that war and lost, Great Britain took over control of that area that we call Israel today, and even uh, Jordan and uh, France with Iraq and some of the in Lebanon, and were giving the mandate by the League of Nations to oversee that area until it could be divided into sovereign nations. Well, Iraq was uh, established as a nation, I believe, in 1932. Uh, Egypt was reconstituted in 1922. Lebanon was created in 1943. All of that was just vast areas of the Ottoman Turkish Caliphate. By the way, as we saw in last week's lesson, Mark Twain toured all of that area in 1860, and he said the Middle East was a dump. Uh, the promised land was a cursed land. It was a malaria-infested wasteland and desert. Nobody lived there. The Ottoman Turkish census of 1882 determined the population between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean was less than 250,000. And most of that was in the three cities of Haifa, Jerusalem, and Jaffa. And even in, we saw Carl Bedecker's travel guide from 1906, that the, the population of Jerusalem, out of 60,000 people, 40,000 were Jews, 13,000 were Christians, 7,000 were Muslims. So the idea of a, um, a, a, a people that lived there and occupied that for millennia is nonsense. 
when the Zionist movement began and the Jews began to move back in in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that's when that land became valuable for the Arabs and they began trying to populate that area. It was the 1920s that the gold was placed on the Dome of the Rock. For 1,300 years, it was just a dome. But then in the 1920, Haj Amin al-Husseini raised money and put gold on it to emphasize just how important Jerusalem really was to the Muslims, which prior to that, it wasn't important at all. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Quran. So there has never been a nation called Palestine. There's never been a Palestine that had Jerusalem as a capital. There's never been a Palestinian constitution. There's never been a Palestinian people. There's never been a, a, a Palestinian currency. All throughout the negotiations, politically, in the early 1900s, it was always termed Arabs and Jews, Arabs and Jews. This whole idea of creating this mythological Palestine and that Israel is coming in and throwing out people that have lived there for millennia is just historically not true. In other words, we would call that a lie. But you see, ultimately, what they're using is this terminology, the evil oppressors, taking advantage of the victimized, oppressed. You see, the same people that are marching in the Black Lives Matter movement, and we know their Marxist beginnings, we know their Marxist ideology, they are also chanting Palestinian Lives Matter in the very same marches. So recognize all of this is tied together. All of it is ultimately working towards this goal of global socialism and having self-governing people don't factor into global socialism. So last week we looked at the biblical history. Today we're going to look briefly, I'm sorry, last week political history. We're going to literally take 30 minutes and blaze through uh, the biblical history of the land of Israel. And let me say this, I had hundreds of slides, hundreds of slides, thousands of verses. I could pick any of the Old Testament prophets and build the case that I'm going to build for you this morning. But first of all, remember that none of this took God by surprise. When Peter stood up and preached that great message at what we call Pentecost, just 50 days after the uh, crucifixion, uh, resurrection, and ultimately the ascension of the Lord Jesus, uh, we see that Peter made this declaration. He said that Jesus of Nazareth, a man that was proved to you by the miracles that he did, you have taken and you have murdered him, but, but, but this was all according to what the Scripture says, the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Recognize Psalm 22, which talks about the crucifixion, had been in the Scripture for a thousand years. Isaiah 53, which says that the Messiah would come, would not be recognized, would be killed, but raised again, was, in, was written uh, 700 years before the birth of Christ. Daniel, 600 years, talked about how the Messiah would come, but be cut off. That word means sacrificed, but not for himself. That was, again, 600 years. The psalmist, Psalm 110, that uh, the Messiah would ascend to heaven and sit on the right hand of the Father until his, the Gentiles be made his footstool. Zechariah 9, Zechariah 11, some 450 years prior to uh, the, the coming of Christ. So all of this, none of this took God by surprise. It was all ultimately a part of his plan of redemption as he is the author and finisher of our faith. Now, first of all, recognize that Abraham had been called in Genesis chapter 12. He said, Abraham, leave your father's homeland, leave your father's religion and Ur of the Chaldees and follow me and I will give you a land and I will make you a great nation. Notice in verses 1 through 3, it talks about a land. Notice in chapter 13, it's repeated. It talks about thy seed shall inherit this land forever. 
we go a little further and we see that of, of, uh, of Abraham's two sons, we have Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, believe me, at Abraham's age, he was wanting God to use Ishmael. He was almost a hundred. He didn't want another kid. Boy, don't you understand that? Aren't you glad we have babies when we're young? But anyway, he didn't want another kid. He said, Lord, won't Ishmael do? God said, no, I'm going to fulfill my covenant through Isaac. We go a little further, and we see that Jacob and his 12 sons were promised while they were in Egypt that they would have the land. And we go a little further, and we know that as God brought the uh, Israelites uh, miraculously out of bondage in Egypt, led them across the Red Sea, 40 years in the wilderness, brought them into the promised land. God said, I'm doing this on purpose. The Jews were supposed to be a lighthouse to the Gentiles. You look at that map, every map that we have, we look at, we see America right in the middle of it. Well, this is how the Lord sees the world. This is truly the center of the world. That would be Jerusalem. And Israel was to be a kingdom of holiness, a kingdom of priests, of the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, being a lighthouse, drawing all the pagan Gentiles to the truth. And ultimately, God will be glorified in that actually happening, literally happening. All the people of the earth, it says in Deuteronomy 28.10, shall see that thou art called by the name of the Lord. That was the original plan. Obviously, the Jews messed that up. Obviously, they're out of the land for a period of time, as God said would happen before they ever went into the land to begin with. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, before they entered in with Joshua leading them, God told them what was going to happen. In fact, we'll preach about that a little bit this morning. God said, you get in there, you disobey me, I'm taking you out. But don't worry, at the end of all things, I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to keep every promise that I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not because Israel is worth it, but because God must keep His Word and His reputation is on the line. So we see here, this is Deuteronomy 28, it's also Leviticus. Before they ever went into the land to begin with, God is telling them that He is going to be forced to scatter them among all the Gentile nations. However, and as I said a moment ago, I could pick any, any books of prophecy, any of them, and pull the same information out. I'll use Jeremiah because I'm going to refer to him uh, many times in the study this morning. Uh, ultimately, God says, I will bring again the captivity of my people all 12 tribes, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Folks, it seems to me that the very clear understanding of what that means is they will return to the land of their fathers and will possess it. Now, think along the timeline. We see creation. We see man sinning. We see the global flood. We see man repopulating. We see man sinning again. This time God calls Avram out of Ur of the Chaldees. We see eventually his descendants go into uh, captivity in Egypt. Actually not in captivity initially as honored guests with only 70. And then some 400 years later they come out, population estimates, at a nation numbering some 2 million. Of course, you know the miraculous rescue. We know that they came into the promised land, and for the first 400 years, they operated at least in some port or form as God had intended as a constitutional republic with the law, and they were to choose out from among the people capable men to serve as judges over tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, and to judge righteously according to the law. Then, of course, they wanted a king. They wanted 
turned a strong arm of government to provide for their every need. And they got Saul. Then they got David. Then they got Solomon. And of course, in Solomon's time, he began apostatizing with uh, his multitude of wives. God, as a result, divided the kingdom. Ten nations to the north, two nations to the south. We know that after about 200 years, the north went into captivity because of their continued paganism and disobedience. So in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was carried away, and that became occupied territory. In 606, they were subjugated by the Babylonians, Babylonians so the southern kingdom uh, was, was um, now under the foot of Gentile rule, beginning at that point in time. Now, there are three major prophets that were all contemporaries. And we're going to reference these guys for the next few minutes. They were all contemporaries. And also notice where they came about. This is a period of time where there is no king in Jerusalem. They are now going to be under uh, Babylonian or the times of the Gentiles, the rule of the Gentiles. Now, God has promised that there will be a future king of the lineage of David. God has promised that they will be in the land ruled by David forever, and they'll be at peace, and they'll be the chief nation and not the, the bottom nation. They'll be lenders and not borrowers. So that is all promised, but it hasn't happened yet. So as we're reading Jeremiah, and as we're reading Ezekiel, and, and as we're uh, uh, reading from uh, uh, Daniel, recognize that this is the point in time they've just been taken out of the land, uh, or in the process of being taken out of the land, and all these are future promises. Now Ezekiel, I love, Ezekiel is right over here. He was taken captive in the second uh, uh, attack on Jerusalem, and he is here in a uh, a refugee village of Jews about 50 miles south of the city of Babylon. Again, a contemporary of Jeremiah, a contemporary of Daniel. And he was given a prophecy. And the thing I like about Ezekiel is largely in chronological order. In chapters 25 through 32, Ezekiel is told to focus on the Gentile and neighbors of Israel. These had been natural enemies of Israel for some thousand years. So throughout Israel's entire existence, these nations existed as well. In fact, many of them, they had to pass through their land and had adversarial conflict as they were going into the land to begin with, with, with uh, Joshua in charge. But Ezekiel specifically calls out these nations. He says, Ammon, you guys are going to be finished. Moab, you will cease to exist. Edom, you are finished. Philistia, you no longer will be around. There will be no Philistia anymore. Uh, Phoenicia, you are finished as well. So again, if you looked on a map for a thousand years, all of these countries existed, and all of them were adversarial. And here in chapters 25 through 32, God says, you neighbors of Israel, Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Phoenicia, are finished. I would challenge you to look on a modern day map and see if you can find those nations on the map. They do not exist. By the way, in the same passage, God pronounced judgment on Egypt. And he said, Egypt, you are finished being a world power. You will exist. I'm going to take you out of land for 50 years. I'm going to bring you back, but you are no longer going to be relevant. And prior to this in history, it had always been Egypt and Syria, Egypt and the Hittites, Egypt and the Assyrians, Egypt and the Babylonians. They had always been one of the top two uh, global empires battling for dominance. But since this point in time, Egypt has existed, but they basically have, in fact, been irrelevant. Then, 
Ezekiel transitions into God's prophecies pertaining to Israel again. And in chapter 37, we are given this image of the valley of dry bones. And Ezekiel was carried away in the spirit in a valley with, obviously, there had been a battle that had taken place, and you had the evidence of it. You had dead bodies everywhere. And it had been hundreds of years, and all that was left was the skulls and the femurs and the rib cages and the, and the, uh, the vertebrae, just bones out there. And they were very dry, uh, God emphasizes here, meaning they had been there for a long time. And God said uh, to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, what does all this mean? Ezekiel said, I don't have the slightest idea, Lord. I'm sure you're about to tell me. And God says, you're exactly right, I am. And he said, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And what Ezekiel witnessed, this is what I want you to, to remember here in passing, saw the bones come together and be hooked together again, standing up as skeletons. Then flesh and sinew and everything on the bones to where they look like an army of humans occupying the land. But it makes this statement, said there, but there was no ruach. That word is Hebrew. It means wind. It means breath. It also means spirit. I would say that that's a reference that Israel will be back in the land, but spiritually dead. But then God will, in fact, blow His Spirit within them, and they will come to life. But it says here, I will open your graves as you're in Gentile nations, and I will bring you back into the land of Israel. I can assure you, as a Jew reading this at that point in time, there was no doubt as what was being mentioned. They were going to return to the land that which they were now out of. And you shall know that I am the Lord, and open your graves, O my people, and brought you out of your graves. And I will place you in your own land. Now, in that same chapter, chapter 37, he transitions into another metaphor. He says, take a stick uh, and write on it uh, uh, Joseph. And then I want you to take another stick and write on it Judah. And I want you to take these two sticks and put them in your hand to where they become one again. I want you to hold that up. That's going to be the scepter, the ruling rod of Israel. And notice you've got two tribes, two nations that have become one. Look what it says here in verses 21. I will take the children of Israel from among all the Gentiles, whether they be scattered. And I will gather them from every direction and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon... Now, notice how specific this is. On the mountains of Israel. By the way, one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more Israel and Judah, but they will be one. And they won't go off into idolatry again. Verse 24, And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they shall have one shepherd, David. They shall walk in my judgments, observe my statutes, and do them. And they shall dwell in the land, where were they? In the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. They shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Now, remember when this is being given is when they were being taken out of the land. You're going to be back in the land, and that king of the lineage of David is going to rule and reign over you forever. Then we have a little bit more details given. Isaiah 11, when we see this marvelous prophecy pertaining Messiah the branch, and of course from that prophecy we get the four Gospels where the Messiah the branch would be the king of the Jews, would be a suffering servant, would be a human being, and would be in fact divine, answered by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
in that very same passage when it says that one day the Messiah will rule and reign in righteousness and there will be peace. Uh, the child can play by the uh, poisonous snake's den uh, and, and lion and wolf or wolf and lamb can, will lay down together and eat together and there will be peace. Uh, well, in that same passage it says this, and it shall come to pass that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people which shall be left of all nations, if you spell that out, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So 700 years before it happened, God says, when I bring you back the second time is when I'm going to establish this age of the Messiah or what I would call the millennial kingdom. All right, everybody's still with me? And everybody understand the importance of the timing? This was at the point where they had just been taken into bondage. They no longer had a king of the lineage of David sitting on the throne, but they were promised that they would again have. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah is given this in chapter 23, verse 5, pertaining to a branch fulfillment, I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. And in his days, Judah and Israel shall be saved and dwell safely. And in His name whereby He shall be called the Lord our righteousness. So understand, this branch, this man, this king of the lineage of David is actually the Lord, and He will rule in righteousness. And in those days Judah and Israel shall dwell safely in the land. Now it goes on in verse 7. As you carry on this very same passage, it says, the next time I bring you back, it's going to be so impressive that you're going to forget all about the time I brought you out of bondage in Egypt. Now, let's think about that for a minute. And that's what it says right up here. Well, there's going to be a time. By the way, that's what the Jews talk about all throughout the Bible. I am the Lord that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord that brought you through the Red Sea. I am the Lord that delivered you with a mighty hand. That was his credentials. That was his resume. You're, now, which Lord are you? Oh, you're the Lord that brought us out of 400 years of bondage in Egypt with the ten plagues and brought us through the Red Sea. Oh, yeah, yeah, that Lord. Yeah, we know who you are. Yeah, okay. Well, there's going to be a deliverance the next time that's so impressive, you're going to forget all about that one. Now, that's a pretty high marker. You guys remember, the Nile River turned into flood, the flies, uh, the, uh, the uh, firstborn dead, then walking through the Red Sea, and the Red Sea closing in on the Egyptian army. That was a pretty impressive deliverance, was it not? Okay, now think where that's been prophesied here. Now let's think of one potential fulfillment. We know that after 70 years, they were going to be allowed to return. And we know that after 70 years, King Cyrus fulfilled that prophecy to the day, and Zerubbabel led a small group back to Egypt. Are back to Israel. Now let's talk about this for a minute. Here we had two million Jews roughly being brought out of captivity of Egypt uh, against the will of the Pharaoh with ten miraculous plagues, then marching through the Red Sea the Re on dry land, middle of the Red Sea, hundred foot walls of water, marching through on dry land. The, the, uh, the Egyptians try to follow them in, and they get uh, drowned, overcome by the water, and drowned. And then God leads them for 40 years in the wilderness and finally into the promised land. That's a pretty impressive story. You could probably do, somebody ought to alert Charlton Heston. They might do a movie about that one. Now we've got Zerubbabel. All right, Cyrus gets brought to his attention, the prophecies of Isaiah. And Cyrus says, okay, I'm in on that. They're talking about me? Oh, seven. I'm, okay, you Jews, you can go back home. All right. Zerubbabel, who wants to go back to Israel? 
Again, there's probably two million Jews now living in Babylon. All right, we're getting ready to head back to Israel. We can go home. Hey, everybody ready to go? Yep, sign up. Less than 50,000 of the two million Jews chose to go back to Israel. Now, that's not nearly as impressive as this one. And on top of that, whereas this one, they had to go against Pharaoh. And this one, Cyrus said, I'll tell you what. Uh, you can use my chariots. You can borrow my car for the weekend. In fact, here's some gas money. I'll send some soldiers with you to give you assistance all the way back and help you get all the way back and get started. Okay? Boy, that to me is just not nearly as impressive between the two. But we are told here in Jeremiah that there is going to be a rescue the next time that blows away the first one to where you forget all about it. All right. Now, jump through to Jeremiah chapter 30. Lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people Israel and Judah. Notice both, all twelve tribes. And I will cause them to return to heaven, metaphorically speaking. No, to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. This is Israel and Judah. And then he talks about what I would call the tribulation. The time of, not the church's trouble, Jacob's trouble. And Jacob shall be saved out of it. Should not be any confusion in studying Matthew chapter 24. The elect in Matthew 24 is talking about the Jews, not talking about the church. So after this 70th week of Daniel, the time of Jacob's birth pains, Jacob shall be delivered out of it. And they shall serve the Lord their God and, ooh, David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. Remember Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 made this forever promise that the, uh, the, a king from the lineage of the throne of David would forever sit on the throne of David to rule and reign with judgment and justice and righteousness. We see that that very same promise was reiterated to Mary when Gabriel told her she was going to have a baby. He shall be great, shall be called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob, those twelve tribes, forever. In his kingdom there shall be no end. So, back to Jeremiah 30. And Jacob shall return, and shall be in rest, and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. Now, you remember what we've just covered. We've already read. We had the time of deliverance from the Exodus. We had, uh, uh, we had uh, now they, they were in the promised land. They were driven out of the promised land, but they were promised that they would be brought back, that David, uh, a lineage of the David would be their king, that they would, be, they would be prosperous, they would rule and reign in righteousness, that they would occupy the same mountains that they're, and cities that their forefathers had occupied, and how we see that they are going to be at rest, be at peace, and no one shall make them afraid. That has never happened. From the time Zerubbabel got back, that initial uh, partial return at 537, they were immediately opposed by the Samaritans. We saw Haman try to wipe out the Jews uh, under Media Persia uh, throughout history. We saw Antiochus Epiphanes try to destroy them. We saw the Roman destruction in 70. We saw the Roman destruction in 135. We see Islam trying to destroy them now. Right now we got what's going on in the Middle East. And of course, just a couple of weeks ago, we see Hamas firing several thousand rockets into Israel again. I would say that there has never been a point in time that they have lived in peace and safety. Now, either God was just using hyperbole and didn't really mean it, or there is going to be a time. That's how I understand it. Now, we continue in Jeremiah 30. Now, again, think back to what we talked about in Ezekiel, how God was going to judge all those Gentile nations and they were finished. God said to Israel, you deserve chastisement, and I'm going to whip the fire out of you, but I will not make a full end of thee. I will correct you, 
but I will not, I will not leave you unpunished, but I will not destroy you. So is God finished with Israel? Again, ladies and gentlemen, for the sake of time, I will just show you a few verses. In Leviticus, before they even got, this was while they're at Mount Sinai, one year uh, after they were out of Egypt. God told them that He was going to wind up driving them out of the land, but He was not, He was going to bring them back. He was not going to cast them off. Psalm 94, I will not cast off my people, neither forsake my inher- his inheritance. Uh, Isaiah 44, O Israel, thou shalt not be forgotten of me. Isaiah 49, yet I will not forget thee. Isaiah 54, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall my covenant of my peace be removed. Uh, Jeremiah 4, the whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end of thee. Jeremiah 5:18, I will not make a full end of you. Jeremiah 46:28, I will not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure. I will not leave you unpunished. Ezekiel 16, 60. I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. Malachi 3, 6. I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Matthew 24, 34. This generation, genos, people, you Jews, shall not all be wiped out till all these things be fulfilled. Uh, Romans 11.22, or 11.2, God hath not cast away His people which He foreknew. Romans 11.25 and 29, blindness and pardon has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in, and then all Israel shall be saved. Because the very last part of that passage, for the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. I could give you hundreds of those verses. I gave you just that sample. So to the Jew, as they are looking forward here, you've got driven out of the land. You've got Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. You've got the promises that one day they're going to return to the land. The king of the lineage of David is going to rule of reign. They're going to be prosperous. They're going to be the number one world power. And uh, everything is going to be good. They're going to rebuild the waste cities. And that, line- that Messiah is going to literally rule and reign the throne of his father David. Then we've got Zerubbabel's return. We've got Nehemiah rebuilding the city. And now we are looking forward to the coming of the king. They know, Jeremiah says, this about the time of Jacob's trouble. They know, Daniel says, there are still seven more years until all these things and prophecies be fulfilled. They know that God said in the days of these kings, those ten toes on Nebuchadnezzar's image, that the kingdom of heaven will be established on earth and God will fulfill His promises. We know Micah, Isaiah 2, Micah 4, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and He will teach us His ways, and we will go walk in His paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and He shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations far off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine, under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of host hath spoken it. So they know this is all coming. They believe it's prophesied. But they were confused because there were two means of identifying when the king came. Zechariah 9.9, Zechariah 14. Coming humbly, bringing salvation, and then coming in power and glory as king of kings and lord of lords. In the Old Testament, that's all you had to see. It was a mystery. We know that that mystery was revealed in the New Testament. This period between these two is the church age. From when the body of Christ uh, ascended to where I would say the body of Christ ascends once again with the rapture. In between here, you've got this age in which we now find ourselves. Now, quick summary. Remember, the church was hidden in the Old Testament. Matthew 13, Jesus, speaking about the mystery parables of the kingdom, He says, I'm teaching you things which have been kept secret. 
from the foundation of the world. Paul was given the privilege of revealing the, uh, uh, the details of this mystery. How in this age both Jew and Gentile can be saved. Whosoever shall, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Paul says, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. When, and notice down here at the end of this uh, verse 9. Which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, but now revealed. So the church was hidden in the Old Testament. Again, the Old Testament, they're looking for this. Okay, the king's coming, Zechariah 9, 9, Zechariah 14. Okay, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. Okay, now here's what we know looking back. And this, we know the church was hidden in the Old Testament. We know that the Jews were looking for the Messiah, but confused with the two appearances. We've talked about that in detail before. We know that Jesus should have clarified that question when he was at Nazareth. He read this messianic passage. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening a prison to them that are bound, and to proclaim, now is the time to accept the Lord. I'm here. And he stopped right there, closed the book, and said, today this is fulfilled right before your very eyes. Now that would line up with Zechariah 9.9. Here's what's interesting. He didn't stop at a period. He stopped in mid-sentence. And it continues with this and, the year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God. I would call that the seven years of Jacob's trouble. I would call that Daniel's 70th week. And then we see the millennial promises, the age of the Messiah, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty in place of ashes, oil of joy in place of mourning, the garment of praise in place of the spirit of heaviness. And I'm going to plant them as trees of righteousness, and they're going to build the old waste cities, raise up the old destroyed communities, and repair those cities and the desolations of many generations. Now, he had to come twice in order to be the Lamb of God, which died for the sins of the world, and also to come as King of Kings. It's obvious to us now looking back at it, or at least it should be. And John said, He came unto His own. Who was that? He came to the Jews. But the Jews received Him not. But as many as did receive Him, to them He gave the power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on His name. And we know that none of this took God by surprise. God had it all planned. Again, reference Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Daniel 9, all of these passages telling the author, the author and finisher of our faith was spelling out how it was going to happen. Yet notice this, as the Jews could not see the church age in the Old Testament, it was in fact necessary that they reject their king so that he be crucified and sacrificed for the sins of the world. However, there was no redeeming quality for them to reject their king. They couldn't say, you know what, we really don't want to crucify you, Jesus, but we have to because you've got to die this time. We know you're coming back in 2,000 years. No, it was just unbelief. There was not any positive, there was nothing virtuous about the Jews rejecting their Messiah. Just simply unbelief. But let me just ask you a quick question. Did God see that coming? Did it catch God by surprise? No. And that's where we see this revelation uh, unveiled from uh, uh, Acts 2 through Acts 7, and we see the, 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 the revealing of, of the church and the church age. And, uh, of course, we see that that's the determinant council that, uh, that uh, Peter was referencing. God had all this. None of it caught him by surprise. He had it in control all along. Now, last summary slide right here. Now, walk along with me. Abraham was told to follow me, left Ur, Eventually, he had 12 sons of Jacob. 
Eventually you had the 70 going into Egypt. You had Moses call them, bring them out of captivity. You had Joshua, Judges, the, the record of, uh, of the kings, the chronicles. You had the Babylonian captivity. And you had the temple destroyed. You had the Jews taken out of the land. And for the first time in a thousand years, well, I'll take that back. First time in 500 years, there was no king in Israel. Now, we see the beginning of the first return. It was rather meager, unimpressive, quite frankly. 49,917 out of roughly 2 million began to trickle back in 537 B.C. You see Ezra with the revival among the priests. You see Nehemiah coming back to rebuild the walls of the city and the streets thereof. You see the conclusion of what we call the Old Testament. Malachi ending with an ellipsis, dot, 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 to be continued. Make sure you're looking for this, this forerunner of the Messiah. And then immediately following, the Messiah is going to be here to be continued. We see historically, we know about the Maccabean Revolt. We know about Rome ruling. We know that Jesus came in Zechariah 9.9, or fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, riding over the, the Mount of Olives on a donkey's colt, Palm Sabbath, and then crucified on Wednesday, rose again on the first day of the week, Rejected king. We know that Titus came and destroyed the city in 70 A.D. We know that the people are out of the land again at this point. What's called the Diaspora from 770 A.D. to the late 1800s. 1880, the Zionist return. Trickling back in after World War II, it became more emphatic. We see the Declaration of Independence, May the 14th, 1948. We see where we are at presently, but still no king. Now, isn't it interesting that Isaiah said, 700 years B.C., that when the Jews returned the second time is when they should be looking for King Messiah to rule and reign. It's interesting, at that point, they hadn't been driven out of the land the first time. They came back their first return, but without a king. Then they rejected their king. Now we're in their second return and still no king. But I would say that the king is coming. At the end of the church age, the body of Christ ascends to heaven. We see sometime shortly thereafter the reaffirmation of a peace treaty. Talked about in Daniel chapter 9. We see seven years of progressive birth pains culminating in the battle of Armageddon. It's described in Joel 3, Zechariah 14, Revelation 19. We see at this point when it looks like it's all over that the king shows up just like one of those old B-Westerns when the good guys show up just in the nick of time. And that's what happens here. And we see that he will establish his kingdom, the millennial reign of Christ, the age of the Messiah after his triumphant, victorious second coming which, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, you're not going to miss me the next time. Just as lightning begins in the east and goes all the way to the west, you're not going to miss this one. In fact, the kings of the earth are going to not celebrate when I return. When they see me, they're going to mourn. Now, why would everybody mourn with the return of Christ? Well, only those that don't want Him coming back are going to be not happy when He does come back. So, anyway... I happen to believe, I'd be of that group that believes that all of those prophecies in the Old Testament will literally be fulfilled by Israel. I believe that God was dealing with Israel. I believe that God is dealing with the church. 
And as I said last week, there is no one that will be in heaven unless they're there by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. Not, not Abel, not Seth, not um, Elijah, uh, not David, not Peter, not J- no one, not a, 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 a tribulation saint won't be in heaven. There is no other means of redemption other than the blood of Christ. They were doing the sacrificial system by faith, obediently looking forward to, being somewhat confused, but looking forward to this coming promise. We are on the other end of the scale. We're looking back, and we see a lot of it clearly. Same Jesus, same blood. Without Jesus, there is no redemption. But Israel will literally be in the land during the millennial reign of Christ. We, as the bride of Christ, will rule and reign with Him in glorified bodies as Jesus had after the resurrection. Wow, I can't even imagine what that's like. I just hope that I'm sure that with my glorified body, I will never hit a stray golf shot. I guarantee every one of them will be center of the club face and right down the middle. I'm going to be playing a lot of golf during the millennium, I promise you. Me and Lash will be out there every day. Uh, so, uh, uh, and, and then at the end, there will be amazingly a brief rebellion again, which God will squash out. There will be a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And at that point in time, the all the just, whether it be uh, pre-Israel believers going back to Abel and Seth, whether it be during the age of the law believers being like David, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, John the Baptist, or whether it be post-resurrection believers like Porter Davis, uh, Paul Blair, well, maybe Paul, sometimes it's debatable, we're not sure, uh, and then the tribulation believers as well, we will all be part of the resurrection of the just, living forever. He will be our God, we will be His people, and eternity, eternity you know, I can't even begin. I think the reason the Bible tells us so little about heaven and so little about eternity is because it's so hard to comprehend an existence of sinlessness, absolute righteousness, without the taint of covetousness or lust or greed or selfishness. I mean, honestly, we, we suppress those things as believers. But it, it, it is hard to imagine an existence without that taint. But we know that it's coming. There'll be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death just walking forever in the presence of our God. So, that will, oh, what a day that will be.